So, hello and welcome. My name is Steve Nabell, and today I'm speaking with Greg Lavoie on his book, Vital Signs, Discovering and Sustaining Your Passion for Life. Now, Greg is a former adjunct professor of journalism at the University of New Mexico, a former columnist and reporter for USA Today, and also the Cincinnati Inquirer. He is a lecturer, seminar leader in the business, educational, governmental, faith-based, and human potential worlds, and is a regular blogger for Psychology Today. He's the author of a couple of books. The first one, which I read a number of years ago, Callings, Finding and Following an Authentic Life, which was amazing. And his latest one is Vital Signs, which we're going to speak about now. And uh, if you want to find Greg, his website, which will go out with this podcast, is greglevoy.com. That's Greg with two Gs, levoy.com. Greg, hi. Hi. Nice to be here. Yeah, I really loved your talk in London uh, some months back. I know you've been traveling, so uh, now you're back. I've got you to do this interview. So my first question to you is, is passion, excitement, exuberance, or something more than that? Um, I think it's both. It's, it is both excitement and enthusiasm, uh, ambition, desire, all those good things. But I, And I don't mean to sound melodramatic when I say this, but I think that passion is also really ultimately a survival mechanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, and, and in, in that sense, very much a matter of health and well-being. Um, because my sense is that um, my attachment to life depends on my interest in it. Yeah. My, se- my sense of, you know, uh, enthusiasm and curiosity and gratitude, um, to say nothing of participation. So my sense of, of passion is it's about engagement, but it's really a skill. I think of passion as, um, in other words, not so much a place I get to, but a place I come from. It's a, it's a stance that I either take or don't take toward life. Um, and it goes by a lot of names, you know, spark, mojo, life force, vitality, all that. But I think of it as a stance that we take toward life um, where, the, you know, the, the, the receivers are in the on position. Um, we're interested in life. We're curious about it. We have a sense of reverence for it and, and all the people in it. Um, and that's something that can be cultivated. I don't think this is one from the either you got it or you don't department. Yeah, it sounds like something you can learn. Because, I mean, I've met many people that you could say on the surface seem quite passionate, but the word reverence is not something that some of those people had. They're kind of loud, you know, loud and, you know, um, kind of, yeah, let's do it. But, there's, but I think when you mention things like reverence and uh, engagement, there's a different quality of passion in what you're talking about, I think, isn't there? Oh, I think so. I, um, um, one of the people that I thanked in my, the acknowledgments page of the, of the callings book was my dad. And the reason I thanked him was for giving me the sense of wonder, teaching me the sense of wonder about the world, which is, I think of as one of my, um, if I can say this, one of my own shining qualities. Um, I think it's, and it's, it's something that's, uh, propelled all the work that I've done in the world. Um, but it's the sense, just an essential sense of wonder and curiosity and fascination. And um, he was a scientist. And the way he taught this to us, <clears throat> pardon me, was through something he invented called the alien game. Right. And, uh, I talked about this a bit in callings, but the, the gist of this was he played 
um, an alien from another planet, at, which we had suspected all along, frankly. But uh, we and we were the his guides on Earth. So we would go out into the neighborhood, into the city, down by the shore, and he would ask questions about the planet that he saw, and we had to try to explain it to him. Yeah. So this was a marvelous teaching tool. Right. You know, because we had to really think through what we were seeing. Um, what does a, a set of stairs say about the inhabitants of the planet? What is dreaming? I remember him asking once, tell me what dreams are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it just makes you really think things through so you don't take anything for granted. Well, that sounds amazing. It sounds an amazing game, you know. And I wish I had something like that. What you, you, on on the subject of questions? What about um, people who channel that kind of energy? Because call it an energy, I suppose, as well as a stance, an energy into things which are kind of a bit more addictive. You know, isn't there a kind of like I can't channel it into life as an engagement, so I just channel it into this addiction or that avoidance? Do you think that happens? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I wish I could say that. I think people should act on all their passions, but I don't. Uh, I mean, for one thing, there's something called crimes of passion. Um, So, you know, there are limits to what I I think um, people should do with passions. But uh, they very, very readily tip over into addictive behavior. Uh, I mean, I, I remember when I was doing some of the research for the book, I ran across this concept of harmonious passion versus obsessive passion. And a lot of people do the obsessive passion thing. And what that means is harmonious passion would be that you're in more of a flow state and there's a flexible um, persistence uh, toward goals, dreams, ambitions, desires. But obsessive passion is persistence at any cost, health, family, relationships, um, life, work, balance, um, and you're your sense of identity or even self-esteem is all tied up with performance. And so these people, according to the research that I found, have a hell of a time when it comes to things like retirement because they're suddenly bereft of the, the sort of the source of their obsession and their mortality rates go through the roof when they're denied the sense of identity that, that's all wrapped up in, in doing and performing and and I don't think obsessive passion is a is a healthy state of affairs. Um, there's definitely been some some surveys that show that it's bad for the immune system, heart, nervous system, um, because you're on you're on uh, the high wire all the time, and it's stressful. You know, I'm not sure if I'm doing him a disservice, but you know, Steve Jobs might be a little bit like that. I know <laughs> he died young. I mean, maybe he wasn't like that, but that kind of obsessive genius, really. But it did create a kind of genius as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I guess I'm I'm talking about more us, us regular mortals. Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. and it, and it's easy to see. It's easy to see where I mean when I look at my own life where I'm I'm tipping over into obsessive or even addictive kind of behavior. And uh it's just something to keep an eye on is all is all I'm saying. Well, passion comes from the Latin to suffer, as, as you've written about in your book. I mean, yeah. you know, and, but there are kind of degrees of suffering. You know, this obsessive passion does sound like a, a quite a path to a strong suffering. But do we always have to suffer? Is it innate in the, in the journey of passion that we suffer to some degree? Well, that's a great question. Um, I know I've seen this bumper sticker. It's something like... Um, Pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Is that yeah, what it is? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I've always questioned that. 
Um, maybe I'm a little bit more of a Buddhist in this regard. And, you know, they say that suffering is, isn't that the first noble truth or something? Yeah. Um, suffering is part of life. Um, and so, I mean, I think of, for instance, my passion for writing, which I've had since I was in junior high school. And there have definitely been periods, whole phases where I was struggling and suffering with it. Mm. And, it's, it doesn't seem to me that it's opposed to the path. It seems like it's part of it. Um, I think uh, I think telling ourselves that if we're suffering, there's something wrong is probably a disservice to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just means that something's coming up that's challenging you or things don't always work out the way you want or expect. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I don't think people should draw this hard line um, that says that if anything um, moves into the realm of suffering, that it, it means you're on the wrong track. I, I, don't, I don't think that's true. I think you need to hold the tension between passion and suffering. You know, that there's both joy and exuberance and life force, but there's also unhappiness. Mm. And, and there's also, um, you know, good old-fashioned suffering in, in any life path, it seems to me. Yeah, well, I guess pa- we'll come to it later, but I guess passion is kind of pulling us onto a journey which could involve challenge and risk, And but I'll come to that later. Let me ask you, um, you write in your book about what blocks passion, and you talk about security in particular. Now, can you say something about how does security block passion? Well, my, my sense is that one of the primary um, dynamics, dramas in, in people's relationship to their own lives and their own sense of life force or vitality is this constant struggle between passion and security, between the part of them that wants to grow and evolve and be excited about life and be plugged in and engaged and um, make hay while the sun shines and all that, and the part of them that wants to pay the bills and wants to do be secure and in control of their lives and and i and unfortunately my own experience has been that in the in the um sort of contest between the two of those passion and security security has a tendency to win and um i can't tell you the number of people who show up in my workshops and maybe that's a self-selective audience so <laughs> you know grain of salt and all that but but how many of the people that i've run across in the work that I do who have made the security choice over and over and over, especially in their work lives. And now they're trapped. I don't think is overstating it in some career that pays the bills, gives them the lifestyle to which they would like to remain accustomed, but is sapping their soul and they're stuck. They feel absolutely stuck. They have kids in college. They've got a mortgage and they don't know what to do. Um, and and I'm not saying security is bad. I mean, I like having money in the bank. I like being able to pay my bills. Um, and I distinctly did not like that small phase of my young life when I was on food stamps. Uh, I don't know. Do you have that in the UK? Well, social welfare, yeah. Different right. kinds, yeah. I hated that phase of life. Yeah. Um, but that was part of the suffering that came along with being suddenly being self-employed as a writer as I went into the red before I went into the black. But I'm just saying that there needs to be you need to strike a balance between passion and security. I mean, you know who Abraham Maslow is? Yeah. Um, Mr. Hierarchy of Needs. Um, He said that um, uh, people who 
tend to flourish um, are the ones who uh, make the growth choice over the fear choice a dozen times a day. And I'm just struck by that uh, for several reasons. One is this notion of making the growth choice, um, but making it a dozen times a day, meaning you're not making like one big choice and that's settled and then another big choice. These are little decisions that we can make throughout any given day, you know, a half a dozen or a dozen times, whether, for instance, somebody asks you, so Steve, how are you doing? Do you tell them how you're really doing? Uh, you, 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 yeah, no, no, there's pat answers usually, isn't, isn't there, I suppose. Right, and maybe that's what most people want. But, you know, little opportunities like that. Um, you're in a bookstore and you're deciding between two different books. One is probably going to be good for the bottom line and one's going to be one that really speaks to you, just really in the mood to read. Which one are you going to get? You know, those those little kinds of decisions that happen all throughout the day. And I'm just really struck by uh, Maslow's comment about making the growth choice um, over the fear choice sometimes. Or And I, I, I use fear choice sometimes synonymous with security choice because I think they're often, often one and the same. Do you, I mean, in your book, you talk a lot about awe and wonder, and you've talked about wonder now. I mean, I was very struck by the opening pages where you, you went to the opera, Pavarotti, I think it was, and you <laughs> yeah. said you witnessed the level of mastery, beauty, and charisma. You know, I guess in our lives, we can have these windows of, of things which have a powerful effect on us, and then I guess it's offering us a choice of some kind, isn't it? Saying, you know, or do you think that, you know, here's a level of passion, would you like to live at that level? Or, or do most people kind of look, get kind of excited and switch it off and go back to their lives again? Mm, that's a great question. Uh, I think sometimes, I mean, I'm just all about give yourself over to that from time to time. You know, allow yourself to be swept away. Uh, you know, this uh, not not to control your exuberances all the time, to control your self expression, to worry about what other people think. And and granted, I mean, I I'm probably as concerned as as the next guy with what other people think of me. But um, I don't think it's a coincidence that when people get toward the end of their lives and they start reflecting on their regrets. One of the big ones that I've heard, and I've, I heard it from, from um, some of my, uh, my own relatives, is I wish I hadn't spent so much time worrying about what other people thought of me. And um, in fact, I ran, ran across an article written by a hospice nurse, and it was called The Five Biggest Regrets of the Dying. And number one was people who said, I regret, first and foremost, that I lived um, – not my own life, but the life other people wanted me to live. And I think that's related to this thing about allowing yourself to feel what you feel and love what you love and obey your thirst and obey your hunger. And again, not to the point of crimes of passion, <clears throat> but to the point of living fully um, and allowing yourself to jump up and down, <clears throat> pardon me, in the opera house and stomp your feet and, uh, you know, whenever I walk into buildings that have big open atriums, I always stop and I'm aware sometimes that I'm obstructing the flow of traffic, but I'll stop and I will look up. And I just, something about looking up and just letting my mouth drop open at art and architecture and these sweeping domes and how do they do that? You know, and just allowing myself to be moved 
I think that's a big part of wonder and awe and reverence and gratitude is just for crying out loud, allow yourself to be moved when you're moved, um, to not stifle yourself when you feel like crying in the movies because real men don't and stuff like that. What I, what I gain from the book is that uh, passion I'm from talking to is, is a almost like prime, more primeval force. You know, it's kind of, it's not something like um, I'm going to follow my seven-step plan to a happier, shinier life. In a way, it kind of comes in and grabs us, it seems like, and says, come out with me, you know, like um, Gandalf knocking on the door of the Hobbit type of thing. And you go, well, where are you going? And you go, well, I'm not telling you. It, 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 do you think it's like that? You've got, it's a force that leads you out into another life, but it's not telling you, you know, step one, you know, okay, we're going to do this and step two like that. It, it's not like that, is it? No. No, that's beautifully put, too. Um, you know, I mean, I once heard somebody say, best way to make God laugh, declare your five-year plan, <laughs> you know, your seven-step plan. Yeah. Uh, no, I think very often these are the things that just uh, grab us in the course of day-to-day -day life. You know, um, yesterday, for instance, I had an in-basket on avalanche alert, but it was also one of the first days of spring that it was 72 degrees and sunny. So there's life grabbing me by the... The, the scruff of the neck saying, you, go outside and play, you know? There's always time for work. You're a workaholic, you, you know? In fact, I'm now at the age having just turned 60 when I'm more and more aware by the week um, how much of my precious and ever-diminishing lifetime I have spent working. And there is more to life than working. And so... Uh, I'm aware that I have, I don't know what, uh, 20, 25 springs left, mm. and that's it. Mm. And so when it's sunny and 72 degrees after winter, and I live in a place that gets winter, it's like, go out and play. You know, there's flowers. You haven't seen flowers in five months. Go out and smell them, as they say, mm. you know, and just go out and be, be in in the natural world. And yes, yeah, so sometimes life just presents you with, not sometimes, often life presents me with opportunities to enjoy it, not just work at it. You know, yeah. my sense is that life is, is to be savored, not just worked at. And I have spent a possibly tragic amount of my time working. I mean, it's just, it's what we do. And uh, I just one of the other biggest regrets of the dying was I didn't spend enough time with anybody. Doesn't that sound familiar? Yeah, it does. Well, you mentioned workaholic, you know, and I, I guess this is not just for men, is it? When men stereotypically are the workaholics, but women, of course, at business can also suffer from that. But you've got a chapter there, um, a spark needs a gap. And you, you talk about this meeting with a woman in a bar after I think your marriage broke down and uh, ended some months before. But then after this, it was a very interesting meeting. And you talk about the link between vulnerability and passion. But could you just say something about this thing, a whole thing about a spark needs a gap and vulnerability and passion? Yeah. Um, where I got that title for that chapter was um, from my dad. Uh, he had, when I was a child, he had built this, this contraption in his basement uh, a laboratory um, that was what was it called? Um, a van? No, it wasn't a Van de Graaff generator. It was um, Tesla coil. 
It was a Tesla coil, and it was this complicated Rube Goldberg-looking machine. And um, but at the top of it were two copper wires, and a, a purple spark would jump back and forth between the two wires. And I remembered that when I was writing the chapter on passion in the context of relationship, because I remember my dad saying, um, "If you don't have the gap, you won't have the spark." <laughs> and I nice. thought, what a wonderful metaphor for relationship, yeah. you know. It, in the sense that um, if you don't have some healthy space in in relationship and have um, individual lives and bringing to the relationship lots of what you discover in your individual um, journeys, um, it's going to get all enmeshed and messy and gooey and and um, and you're going to be kind of one indistinguishable mass. Um, and I just that's why I called it a spark needs a gap is because I was talking about part of of passion in in relationship is having some good healthy space that, so that was the that was one piece the vulnerability piece um is really uh, underserved i think in relationship life and and i i'm as guilty as as anybody i just think that the more you're willing to reveal of who you really are and how it really is for you and what you're feeling in any given moment and quit trying to to be the tough guy even if you're a woman um, to just lower the drawbridge, um, I think the more you're willing to do that, the more power and strength you build into relationships, not the less. And maybe especially for guys, the kind of vulnerability that is required to you know, lower our, our, um, our shields in relationship is bred out of us at a pretty early age, isn't it? And, um, and I think that's a steep learning curve, especially for the men. Um, but I think that the willingness to be vulnerable, um, to speak from the heart, to say how it really is for us to, to express our confusion about even being in relationship, our ambivalence about it, um, I think draws people out from behind their defenses and makes them, makes the relationship stronger. So I think that's my sense of part of, um, drawing passion into relationships is being willing to step out from behind the armor. And I, again, goes for women, I think, as much as men, because we're all, we've all got our wounds in this department. Yeah. Well, my final question for you, uh, Greg, which is kind of a cross between your f first book and your second book, is that really I, I kind of see passion as a kind of calling that, that calls us to a kind of another life. And um, what, what would you say to somebody who's standing at a crossroads where their passion is calling them one way, but there's an, another way that says stay, stay, or, you know, don't do it? What kind of advice would you give them? Mm, I would say let the two of them talk to each other on the page for a half an hour and don't take your hands off the keyboard. <laughs> I mean, I'm just a big believer in dialogue. Right. <clears throat> you know, it's just easy to let the two of them retreat to opposite sides of the you know, courtroom, as it were. But I think bring them together in conversation. Let passion talk to security or let um, option one talk to option two, whatever they are. And I mean, for a, for a half an hour, let them really have at it. And it's sometimes amazing what you'll see in the conversation. Um, so that, that would be step one is really flesh it out. And, and um, I remember maybe one of the best pieces of advice I've ever been given was you need to learn how to tolerate paradox yeah. to hold to hold the tension between two seemingly opposing choices or or 
energies or beliefs even. Um, and uh, that has really, that's been a tough learn for me. Um, it's one that I'm constantly working with is um, bringing two opposing ideas. I should do this or I should do that together to, to dialogue with one another. Um, and frankly, um, I'm thinking of the world in its present shocking condition. I think this is a good skill to have, not just inter- not just personally, but interpersonally, if not politically, because the the ability. Uh, this is what I'm discovering: the ability to hold the tension between, let's say, us and them. Mm. Okay, um, as one of the dualities of among multitudes, tends to build a lot of resilience into people and mitigates against tyranny, in my opinion. Because tyranny just means you're elevating one principle and, and uh, subjugating others. Hmm. And that, again, goes for as much for the, the psyche as the body politic. And I just think that doing your own homework in your own backyard um, around managing the tension of two opposing forces um, has, has a contagious effect in your relationships to the rest of the world. Fabulous answer, Greg. I think that's a brilliant way of paradox. It's something I kind of have to remind myself in my life, I must say. So. Mm, absolutely. So, Greg, look, all the best with the book, Vital Signs, um, Discovering and Sustaining Your Passion for Life. And a reminder, it's greglavoy.com, and a, a link will go out with this podcast. So, Greg, all the best. I do hope you come back to Britain. I loved your last talk, and I hope you're going to – I don't know how – I think it took a few years to write this one, didn't it? Yeah, ten. Ten years. Oh, well, well, I, I don't have to wait ten years for the next one, do I? <laughs> I hope not. Okay. Greg, thank you so much. You're, you're welcome. Thank you, Steve.